Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. From 1987 to 1997, a television show that was not about technology began every week with a song that did something curious. It tied together human relationships and technological inventions. The song and the show, which was called Married with Children, weren't aiming for deep insights, I don't think, but they stumbled on them anyway. Love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage This, I tell you, brother You can't have one without the other There were two interesting claims here. One, love and marriage are tied together. Now, the joke, of course, is that that's only kind of true. We, the audience, know, well, it's not a requirement, and we can all point to examples where love and marriage are not tied together. But the second claim in the song may be even more interesting, that a relationship is like a piece of technology. In this case, a horse and carriage, which didn't exist for most of human history, but probably started being used around 4,000 years ago. But are love and marriage really like pieces of technology? We now think of marriage as a natural structure, but it's actually rather new in the, in the broad scope of history. Deborah Spar is the author of the book Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. She's the former president of Barnard College, and she's now a dean at Harvard Business School. She argues that relationships and technology are inextricably linked, that the shapes of the unions we're in they were, in fact, invented. And those unions are also interwoven with and molded by the technology around us. And when I say technology, I mean everything from refrigerators to the birth control pill to cars. And we'll get to all of that. The theorist, Marshall McLuhan, when said, first we build the tools, then they build us. Deborah Spar says, that is certainly true when it comes to relationships. Once we've built these tools, whether they're farming implements or computers, they begin to shape us in really powerful ways. So it's not a one-way deal where we just build the tools we want. Once we've built these things, they start to change our lives in ways that are, are really tough to predict or even imagine at the moment that we're, we're just building the tools themselves. If all this seems kind of far-fetched to you, Consider the fact that we're living through a pandemic-induced moment in which many relationships are being started or maintained through technology. So online dating already used fancy algorithms to pair people up who maybe a generation ago would never have met. And it's even more important in some ways during a time when it's a lot harder to meet someone at a bar or at a friend's big wedding. Deborah Spar says... Technology underpins our romantic and family lives in ways most of us never consider. And that goes way back. Back to the Married with Children theme song, really. Because marriage itself, she argues, it was invented by one single technology. A technology that came around about six to 8,000 years ago, the plow. And what seems to have happened is that prior to the plow, by which I really mean prior to the development of, of agriculture, 
our ancestors lived as hunters and gatherers. You know, everybody knows that. We, we foraged for our food. We ate the fish we could find and the berries we could collect. And there doesn't seem to have been any institution like we now think of as marriage. So that's kind of the starting argument that we now think of marriage as a natural structure, but it's actually rather new in the in the broad scope of history. But once agriculture came around, uh, people needed things, they needed property, they needed to protect their property, and crucially, they needed labor. And the only way that you could get labor in 6000 BC was either by stealing other people, which is why tragically slavery also emerges at this moment in time, or by producing more labor. And you need women to produce the labor to produce the children. And so what happened in society after society was as women's reproductive power became so valuable, men started to control that power. And it's not very romantic, but you see that relationship in most traditional marriage ceremonies where the young woman is given away by her father, she is his property, Mm -hmm. to a man with the promise that she will create children for him and only him. That's kind of the marriage contract. Right. And sometimes it's even more explicit than that, because if you're talking about like a dowry or a bride price or something, she's literally given in exchange for something, right? Just like you would if you were buying Buying a sheep or a goat. And, you know, even more tragically in most of these societies, if the woman did not produce children, because that was what she was bringing to the bargain, Mm. she could be divorced or killed. Because that was her value. Her value was her reproductive abilities. What fascinated me is that, you know, like, you know, you talked about the, the plow sort of set off this series of events that helped create marriage. And um, as you say, it really helped create something that hadn't existed before, which was this idea of private property. And if you were going to hand down your private property to your family, you really had to know, like, sexual freedom could not exist because you had to know who your children were. Exactly. And for the woman, of course, it was easy to know who her children were because she physically gave birth to them. But this was way before the era of paternity tests. So there was no way to know whose children belonged to a man unless he could guarantee that the woman to whom he was married had had sex only with him. And so again, you see this, this, the creation of this cult of virginity and of fidelity. So the woman is pledging that she will never have sex with anyone else again, because that's the only way for her husband to know that the children she produces are his. Again, not very romantic, but, the, but that is what the marriage contract is about. And and you were saying marriage as an institution does not seem to have existed before we had this technological revolution of, of agriculture. That That is what most of the anthropologists seem to presume. Again, we can't okay. prove it, but it seems like, you know, people paired up to have children. They may have taken care of the children together, um, but children were largely raised by the tribe. Uh, people moved in bands of 20 or 30, and that was the central unit of society, not this kind of tightly bound contractual union between one man and one woman forever, um, which is what traditional marriage is is really about. So, uh, you know, once people started getting married, um, there was obviously a lot written about monogamy and, and about love and, and like this one special uh, I don't know, uh, feeling that surrounded this this individual couple. Uh, 
Now, I think people think those are connected to the soul, to the heart. Um, but do you think, well, I don't know, maybe these beliefs that we have are really inventions that flow from technology? Sort of yes and no. I, I think even even after having done all this research, I still am a firm believer in love. I, I think that is hardwired. I think we love our children. We love other human beings. We love our parents. I don't think that changes as a result of technology. What happens, though, is, is that we change our social structures and the role that love plays within our social structures. So marriage, even though marriage as an institution goes back to the agricultural revolution, love was not part of the bargain of marriage. You know, marriage was something that was done. It was very transactional. It was about property rights for wealthier people. It was about passing on lineage. But love was not part of the bargain. And you first yeah. start to hear about love kind of in, in the Middle Ages. And it's not necessarily marital love. And the whole idea of courtly love was usually extramarital affairs. Right, right, the right. idea that we marry people we love is really a very recent belief. And it comes roughly around the Industrial Revolution when we get this sort of adoration of the happy couple, the idea that people fall in love, get married, and, and stay together forever. That idea is really only a couple of hundred years old. Okay, so let's uh, talk about the Industrial Revolution a little bit. So now we're moving kind of from uh, roughly 10-ish thousand years ago uh, from the Agricultural Revolution to um, just a few hundred years ago to the Industrial Revolution. You look at this notion of how that revolution, how how a new set of technologies change relationships, families, you know, who we love, who we marry. Um, and Interestingly, you turn to the work of Marx and Engels, who people think of as related to communism. What did they see about what was happening in this transition with the Industrial Revolution um, that that you like, you know, that really struck you? Yeah. So I, I went back and read a lot of Marx and Engels while I was doing this work. And, you know, I want to be quick to point out, you know, I teach at Harvard Business School. I'm hardly a communist and I disagree fundamentally uh, with communism as a solution to anything. However, in terms of understanding the relationship between technology and society, Marx and Engels are really quite brilliant. Um, they, of course, were writing during the Industrial Revolution, and like most people writing at that time, they were trying to explain it. They were, they were really preoccupied with seeing how this technological shock was going to change economic relationships, but they, they focused on class relationships. But they also, in some small uh, ways, looked at how technology was reshaping the family. So I picked up from that work and, if you will, sort of riffed on it. But, but what you see during this period is that once we get the factory economy, which of course was a result of steam engines and the whole creation of, 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 of machinery, you get a, something which had never really happened before in human history, which is that rather than earning their living, their livelihood at home, from, mostly from subsistence farming, people started to go out of the home to work. And in the early days of the revolution, it was actually mostly women and children who left the home. The husband stayed home and did the farming, and the women and the children went to the new factories, the textile mills. But as the revolution proceeded, and particularly as fewer and fewer people were needed to do the agricultural work, 
men started displacing women in the factories. And by the, by the end of the 19th century, the norm in most of the industrialized world was that men were the wage earners. And that's a huge shift. And again, we take that as being the norm now, that men are the breadwinners and women stay home and take care of the children in the household. But that's a really new convention. Um, and, and it comes as a direct result of this factory economy that Marx and Engels and, and others of those, that era were, were first starting to understand. Um, you talked about how uh, in the Industrial Revolution or at, at some point, um, the notion of loving the person that you were married to, which was not always two things that were coupled together, uh, love and marriage, um, those did come together. Yeah. What about that time made those two things come together? Well, and this also related to changes in religion and and the declining role of some of the great uh, authorities or hierarchies that had been in place throughout the long Middle Ages. But just as men were going into the factories and as people had a little bit more mobility, you start to get this creation. And again, it wasn't overnight. It emerged over time. This idea that, that the, the family was a crucial structure and that what defined the family, again, was this husband going off to work, the man going off to work, and the woman who stayed at home and loved both her husband and critically her children. You don't get a lot of early literature about even you know mother-child love, although I'm sure that was always there. Um, but but this idea that that the woman's role is to be the nurturer, what what some people refer to as the domestic goddess, to love her husband, love her children, and take care of them. And again, I think these are all great values. But but what I'm trying to argue is that they were values that were really underscored as a result of particular social changes. Do you think, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about the more modern era um, in a second, but do you think when people started to marry, when people started to be in these much more sort of binding monogamous relationships, do you think they thought of their changing lot in life as being connected to technology, no. like things like the plow and the power loom, let's say. No, well, certainly not for the plow, because these changes took place over hundreds, if not thousands of years. So nobody really saw the plow coming. It, 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 it changed so slowly. With the Industrial Revolution, that's why I find this period so fascinating, that's the first time that people see change in their own lives. So there are people who never knew what a railroad was, and all of a sudden it happens. People who lived on a farm and moved to a factory. So the whole idea of the future really doesn't even occur until the Industrial Revolution. And then if you fast forward to where we are now, now, of course, we're seeing technology unfold yearly. Um, and, it, and so I think that's why it makes these conversations so much more important, because if you believe, as I do, that technology changes our social structures in these fundamental ways, then my gosh, what is going to happen to us and our kids and not to mention our grandkids when technology is, is changing as it is now at this incredibly rapid pace? So if people were watching, alive during the Industrial Revolution, watching technology change and therefore change relationships because men are going out to work in these technologically driven factories, women are staying at home instead of, like, as you were saying, a farming family where people are dividing up the farming uh, jobs and everybody's doing some of it. Was there pushback? Was there resistance to saying, like, I don't 
really like this kind of relationship. Like, I like the old kind. Right. No, absolutely. And that's why Marx and Engels are, are so important in this, because they were really at the forefront of people who were seriously pushing back and seriously okay. concerned about what was going to happen. The whole Luddite movement, you know, we talk about the Luddites yes. now without knowing all that much about them. But the Luddite movement was a, a movement against these technological changes. That's why they smashed machinery. And and that's why as well, you got these social movements that were explicitly designed to take women out of the factories and the mines because that was seen as being way or way too disruptive. Uh, so again, and you get these really interesting echoes today. One of the things that I find most worrisome is that if technology continues to displace labor in factories and meat processing plants and at truck drivers, all the things you hear about, right. we're going to see another massive loss of jobs. They're going to be mostly male jobs. And I think we're, we're already seeing this sort of neo-Luddite movement which is very much concerned about what happens when these jobs go away. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Deborah Spar. She's the author of the book, Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the technologies that have changed who we marry, who we date, and the families that we build. And those technologies include cars and washing machines. It's an institute you can't disparage Ask the local gentry And they will say it's elementary By the way, what you're hearing here is the same music that you heard at the beginning of the show. It was used as the theme song to the 90s TV program Married with Children. But it was recorded many decades earlier, August of 1955, it's sung by Frank Sinatra. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Like a horse and carriage, Dad was told by mother, you can't have one, you can't have none, you can't have one without the other. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. One of the most important developments in the history of relationships happened just about 100 years ago. And it didn't concern wedding rings or vows or white dresses or anything like that. Instead, it was the widespread popularization and at-home adoption of an invention that, at first blush, doesn't seem terribly romantic. It sounds even silly to say, right? Deborah Sparr is the author of the book, Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of the refrigerator as a massive technology for women's emancipation. Sparr is the former president of Barnard College. She now teaches at Harvard Business School. And yes, she argues, refrigerators changed relationships. Indeed, our relationships, though we may not realize it, are the product of one earth-shattering technology after another, like plows, which powered the agricultural revolution and helped invent marriage so that farmland could be maintained and passed down through the generations. 
or like steam engines, which powered the Industrial Revolution and helped invent the modern family by pulling people towards factories and away from farms. They move to cities, they live in smaller dwellings, and you move away from the extended family structure of having the aunts and the cousins and the mothers-in-laws all nearby. And people have their own dwellings, and, and that's really when we get the creation of the nuclear family as we've come to sort of lionize it. Then, about a century ago, an invention that had existed for a while, since the middle of the 1800s, it was adapted for home use. Ultimately, it would help free up more women to join the workforce, reshaping families and their options. Though as the invention gained in popularity through the 1920s and 30s, especially after World War II, emancipation and a change in the family structure didn't exactly seem like the contribution it was going to make. Let's start with the most ingenious door in any refrigerator. It has special places for bottles, spreadable butter, cheeses, even leftovers, and a big picture window hydrator for fruits and vegetables. It tilts down to show you your supply at a glance. Still, says Deborah Spar, as with so many technologies before it, the refrigerator was about to upend marriage, partnerships, and how we see ourselves. If you go back, and it's not even that long ago, depending on where people are in the world, if you go back to your grandmother's or certainly your great-grandmother's kitchen, there was a huge amount of work involved in feeding a family, even more work involved in keeping laundry clean for a family. It took women 40, 50, 60 hours a week to do all the housework that was required. This was going to the market every day, canning, preserving. These things were exhausting. And so once, it's only once you get particularly washing machines and refrigerators that women's work actually becomes manageable in something less than a full week. So even now we all complain about doing the laundry, but it really doesn't take all that long. It's a couple of hours. Whereas if it was taking you 20 hours a week, you couldn't possibly work outside the home. And so it's really only when we get those household appliances that women have the ability to work outside the home, Um, except for those women. And sadly, there were many of them who were very poor throughout this whole period and always had had to work outside the home, usually as domestics doing other women's housework. So there've always been some women working, but particularly for middle-class and wealthy women, it was only once their housework got reduced that they could even imagine taking a job in an office. You also talk about the car as a technology, and I've never thought about this, but that gave women, well, did two things. One is it kind of tied them down in some ways. Um, But the other thing is it gave them a certain degree of freedom uh, because cars don't tell stories about where they've been. And, you know, you have the ability potentially to leave your home and to go somewhere during the day and never tell anybody about it. No, exactly. And there are all these wonderful stories because, again, this was only 100 years ago. Um, of women, you know, so excited that they could take the family car, the family truck, and they could drive their own eggs around and sell them. They had some degree of autonomy. Cars, of course, also created teenagers, not to mention teenage sex. Uh, not that that didn't <laughs> exist before, but all of us, you know, if, if courtship was done on your family's porch, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for, for intimacy. Right, but once right. you could get away in a car, particularly once right. cars developed tops, there was a whole range of behavior that all of a sudden became commonplace. Huh. 
So when you think about what the technology of that of the mid 20th century did, did it um, how did it change marriages and relationships and mating? Um, because I just think about in the context of other things, we talked about how the agricultural revolution, in a lot of ways, it really tied women down in a way that they had been much freer before. Um, what did the mid 20th century do for for uh, couples and relationships? Well, I think it really, it opened up more channels for women's freedom. Um, and, and one of the arguments I'm making, again, I'm saying this as someone who was the president of, a, of the women's for feminist college for, for 10 years, Clearly, feminism was driven and enabled by an amazing group of women who fought for women's right and women's liberation, and we know all those stories. What I'm adding to that to that history is to say technology played a really big role, that yes, women fought for the right to work in factories and in offices and to go to law school, but a lot more women were able to take advantage of those rights once they actually had time on their hands you know, to do something other than the laundry. And of course, the crucial technology for women's liberation was the contraceptive pill, the birth control pill. Um, because once women had contraception, which they could control, they could take the pill, nobody needed to know whether they were on it or not, they had the ability for the first time in history to time their children's births or crucially to decide that they didn't want children or didn't want children now. So the separation of sex from reproduction is really one of the most important technological turning points in the history of humankind. You say, you know, uh, not too long after it was developed, like a dozen years or so uh, after it came on the market, the birth control pill was the best selling pharmaceutical product in the world. So clearly uh, women were very interested in it very quickly. Um, do you was there an immediate um, backlash against that? Uh, I mean, I just wonder has has that backlash? I, I feel like over time there's been a backlash. I wonder if people immediately saw how it was going to change. Yes, things. there was all kinds of of sort of horror. Uh, in the pub, in the popular press, uh, okay. not and of course among religious authorities as well, that the pill was a crime against nature. It was unnatural. It would destroy women's place in the universe. And yet, as you just mentioned, despite all this criticism, women took it in droves. Um, and it talks to the the incredible demand that was there. And and then you know some of these things that people were worried about did come to pass. Yes, there was an increase in premarital sex. There was an increase in, um, in women delaying childbirth. And yet somehow we've managed to sort of t t toggle along and the world hasn't fallen apart just because women have access to contraception. And, and you know, it's an interesting theme that happens, you know, throughout some of these technologies I describe in the book, particularly when we're talking about advances in reproductive technologies People get terrified. There's this real sense that we're, we're upending the natural order. So we see it with birth control pill. We saw it earlier with even basic contraception, things like rubbers, condoms. Um, and now we're seeing it with assisted reproduction, things like IVF and, and newer ways of, of, uh, of assisted uh, conception. And yet we always or nearly always see the same pattern. There's this sort of panic, this horror, and yet people are so desperate 
to use these technologies that very quickly we normalize for them. And nobody, or very few people, I should say, really worries anymore about the use of, of in vitro fertilization. It's seen as something that many, many people have to rely upon. And yet when that first was discovered or, or developed, we had the same sort of horror sweeping across the public media with these horrible pictures of, you know, little babies smushed into test tubes. And yet now it's completely um, normal. You've um, written that you see your own life as uh, the product of technology, like everything you do and are. In what way does that play out? How do you see that? Well, and it, you know, it was an interesting sort of reckoning for me to even sort of write those sentences, because as anyone who knows me well would say, I'm not a particularly technologically proficient person. Um, and yet, when I just look at my life, there's no way I could have had the life I have with three children and a working husband and, and a career that I care deeply about if I didn't have a laundry machine at home, if I hadn't had access to contraception, which enabled me to time my children's births, if I hadn't had a car so I could go to work every morning. So I am, just like everybody else in the world, is I am a creation of the technology that existed during my lifetime. So my life is fundamentally different than my, my grandmother's lives were. Right. And right. I don't think that's because I'm fundamentally a different person. It's just I lived in a different moment of history. So then again, when you fast forward and I think about what my, my grandchildren's lives could be like, they will be fundamentally different again as a result of the technologies that will shape their experiences. So we'll hold it there for a second. Um, when we come back for the final few minutes of our discussion, a look at that future and how relationships may change because of all sorts of things, including the increasing automation of traditionally male jobs. We'd love to know, how has technology reshaped your life and your relationships? Were there inventions that just changed the game for you? You can tell us your story by sending us an email. We're at innovationhub at wgbh.org. You can also head to innovationhub.org. You can click on the About tab, and there are a bunch of different ways to contact us. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. One of the things about technologies is you never quite know how they're going to be used. So Steve Jobs, for example, when he unveiled the iPhone in 2007, he could not have imagined what the iPhone, and actually what smartphones more generally, have become. It's got a three and a half inch screen on it. It's really big. And it's the highest resolution screen we've ever shipped. It's 160 pixels per inch highest we've ever shipped. It's gorgeous. And on the front, there's only one button down there. We call it the home button. It takes you home from wherever you are. And that's it. Jobs thought he was unveiling a sleek new phone. And the nice thing was, it could play music. 
It seems unlikely he could have envisioned phones that were overrun by everything from Twitter to Angry Birds and really that demand our constant attention. But once you create something and you release it into the world, you just never know. Deborah Spar, a dean at Harvard Business School, argues that has happened again and again with technologies that reshape relationships. Technologies like the plow, the car, the refrigerator, the steam engine, the birth control pill. They've brought about new sorts of unions, marriage, the nuclear family. Spar is the author of Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. And she says, technology is about to change our relationships again. Take, for example, a technology that, if anything, we've been underestimating for a while in vitro fertilization. So IVF actually emerged as a deeply traditional technology in the sense that even though the technology was revolutionary, it was designed to help infertile heterosexual married couples have the families that were deemed to be traditional and natural and right. Right. Um, Yet, as the technology has evolved and as it's become more widely available, it's not just heterosexual married couples who are using it. In fact, IVF and technologies of assisted reproduction are what's enabled single women to have babies. So they don't need to have a man anymore. They can Mm -hmm. buy sperm. Crucially, it's allowed same-sex couples to have babies, uh, particularly gay men. You know, gay men cannot have a child without some technology being involved in the process unless they adopt, which they usually can't. Um, So we are getting this, what I always think of as sort of a kaleidoscope of family structures now where we can have same-sex couples and single people and older people having children yeah. later in life. All of that is as a result of technology. And and you say that IVF may become uh, sort of even more technologically amazing and allow people and groups of people to have children that cannot right now. Can you kind of look in the future? What is down the line potentially when it comes to IVF? Sure. Well, some of the stuff we already have. So there's a technology called PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or pre-implantation genetic testing. And using that technology, people can go through IVF and then when the embryos are at the very earliest stages, they can analyze them in a clinic and see which embryos are going to carry which genetic characteristics. Now, we can't screen for everything now, but already people are using this to produce healthier children, uh, to produce children who don't have cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs or some some other disease for which we know there's a, a specific genetic mutation. Over time, people will be able to screen for more and more things. Now, this always raises the fear of, of designer babies, which I, I do think is, is a real fear. Um, I think people already screen for gender, right? Can't you choose sometimes if you, yeah? Absolutely. People screen for gender all the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially if they're already going through the process. So, so we have the ability now to select our children in ways that were never conceivable before. And if you look further into the future, and this, this technology is not yet possible, but there's another round of this, which, which people are calling IVG, in vitro gametogenesis, which will enable people to create egg or sperm cells from their own stem cells. 
And that, if it comes to pass, and I want to be careful in saying it's, it's not yet feasible, but if it comes to pass, then two, uh, two men could create a child who is genetically theirs without having okay. to introduce a woman in the mix. And then we create very different kinds of family structures. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure with every technology that has come along that has changed, um, you know, sort of family structures, people have been concerned. Uh, so maybe I, I'm too concerned because this is just the technology of my own moment. But uh, should we be concerned that the family that family structures are changing so much, or should we just take this as you know, look, this is what happens, and it's always happened. So I'm somewhere in the middle between those two. I think looking at all these technologies after over such a long period of time. I'm really convinced that once we create a technology, we, we don't put the proverbial genie back in the, in the bottle. I, I think reproductive technologies are going to advance faster and faster. I think technologies for online dating and, and, and meeting are going to advance faster and faster. I don't think we can reverse them. What I think we can do, and this is sort of the plea in the book, is to start to imagine where these technologies are going to go and then put guidelines around them. I mean, to give a super simple uh, analogy, when cars were first created, there were no speed limits. There, there were very few roads. There were no stoplights. And after enough accidents and chaos, people decided, huh, you know, we can have a speed limit. We can legislate. We can regulate. I think we need the equivalent of, if you will, speed limits. And we look at technologies of assisted reproduction and say, what are the bad things that can happen and how do we stop the bad things? So, for example, we shouldn't allow anyone to transplant eight embryos into a single woman's uterus, yet that happens. If we look at social media, less sexy, but I think we're already seeing it play out, in retrospect, we should have put more guidelines around social media. We should have decided 20 years ago whether how we wanted to think about hate speech. We should have decided 20 years ago that maybe we wanted to have more protections for privacy. If we just let technologies evolve on their own, bad things are going to happen along with the good things. But we have the ability to stop that, not to put the technology back in the bottle, but to to guide it so that we get the benefits without leaving ourselves open to all of these risks. Whose responsibility is it to put in those guidelines to say, "Mm, maybe you shouldn't put eight embryos in in a woman or maybe having three or four people be the parent of this child, even if you can do it in a dish in a lab, maybe that's not the way to go. That's too confusing. Like, who is the who is the we who says, "Okay, we've got to restrict things? Well, this is this is the role of government. And clearly at the, the moment, given the, the, the mess in our governance structures, it's a scary proposition to imagine government regulating all these things. But that's why we have governments. You know, governments are the ones who put speed limits in place, whether it's a local government or a national government. And if you look at other countries, particularly in the reproductive space, there are many countries that have, in, in fact, put very sensible guidelines in place. How many embryos you can transfer, how old a woman can be and make use of these technologies, and, and crucially, who pays for them. Because one of my other short-term fears is that virtually all of the technologies I'm talking about in the book are going to exacerbate inequality 
rich people will, will get access to them and poor people won't. And we need governments to step in here and figure out how we can at least soften some of these implications. Otherwise, I really do fear uh, that we could be pushing ever closer to what you know starts to feel like revolutionary times. You know, we've talked about technologies that both prevented pregnancy, so contraception, um, and help pregnancies happen that maybe otherwise couldn't have, so like IVF. Both of these technologies are really quite new. I mean, these are in the last century uh, kinds of things. Um, do you think that their overall effect has been good? Have they have they created new families and that's good? Have they torn apart the family structure and that's bad? I mean, you've got people on all sides of this, right, of right. this debate. I just wonder when you look at the totality of something that's happened just so fast and in both directions so recently, what you think? I, I think overwhelmingly these technologies have been good. Um, okay. I think people, for the most part, people produce children because they love them. We don't see people out there creating 24 children because they want to clone an army that looks like themselves. I think reproductive technologies, both of conception and contraception for for overwhelming amount of uh, cases have enabled people to produce the families they want and the children they will cherish. And I think it's a wonderful thing that we now have the ability that those children can be conceived and cherished in same-sex families, in single-parent families. Uh, I think giving giving people the ability um, to to control when and how they want to have children is fundamentally good thing. And I also think it's sort of a more uh, basic economic level, the fact that women no longer have to take the risks of having 11, 12, 13 children has enabled them to be more productive members of the workforce. And crucially, most importantly, has enabled them to be healthier and their children to be healthier. So we see this in country after country. As, as, as countries get wealthier and if they have access to contraception, the rates of, of the fertility plummet to the point where now they're, they're sort of getting dangerously low in, in some developed countries. I was going to ask because there are a number of countries I can think of both in Asia and in Europe where it's like 1, 1. 1.5, I, mean, I think in the U.S. it's 1.7, which we're at an all-time low. Um, is, is there anything bad about the, the fact that now, like, you know, as technology seems to progress, we seem to have fewer and fewer children. Right. Right. No, that for sure is true. I mean, who who would have thought that we would be worried about underpopulation? Um, I, I think for the moment, especially given the environmental issues that we're facing, having fewer people is still good for, for the race and for the planet. Where we are starting to see some real uh, concerns, though, particularly if you look at places like Japan, where, where the fertility rate is far below replacement, what we are creating societally is this this imbalance where we have too many old people and not enough young people to take care of them, both in terms of support and and economic activity. So there are these imbalances, but there are ways to address those, I think, that, that don't go so far as to sort of demanding that people produce more children. So we've talked about how reproductive technology is sort of changing the nature of family. One of the big themes of your book is that the work people do, be it like in the fields or in the factory, 
that changes whether they, let's say, see a need to get married or see a need to partner up with just one person or, or you know, have a stay-at-home spouse or whatever. Do you have a sense of how work is changing in a way that will change our families and our relationships? Yeah. Well, there's, of course, there's a bunch of things going on simultaneously. But I think one of the most important ones is that a lot of the jobs that have traditionally been held by working class men, things like factory workers, truck drivers, bus drivers, those yes. jobs are being automated um, and displaced far faster than the jobs that have traditionally been held by women, you know, teachers, uh, healthcare workers. I worry about that. Um, I worry about that both in terms of how it's going to shake up the family structure. We still live culturally in a world that expects the men to be the breadwinner. So what happens inside any individual family's dynamic when suddenly it's the wife who's bringing home the paycheck and, and the man who's at home? Um, but I worry even more at a societal level because we, we know from history that having large numbers of unemployed, angry men is not a good thing. We really need kind of a, a reconceiving of men's identities, similar to what we saw with women and feminism. So for most women today, there's kind of a whole range of identities that, out, that are out there. You can be a stay-at-home mom, and that's still a good thing to be. You can be a working mom. You can be a, a woman who works without children. There's a whole range of identities. But for men, we still kind of define them by their jobs. And... I think we fundamentally need to fix that because if, if men are defined by their jobs and their jobs are going away, what happens to men? Hmm. So finally, let's go back to the quote that you uh, had at the beginning of your book, uh, which is, first we build the tools and then they build us. After you um, looked at how the tools build us, um, did it worry you that machines were so much in control of the things that I think many people think they are in control of. It all worries me, right? We're living through, <laughs> we're, we're living through a fraught moment. But, but again, my plea remains that this isn't a deus ex machina. It's not that we're building these all-powerful tools and that once we let them out of our hands, they, they turn around and, and do horrible things to us. We build the tools and we have the power, the innate power to guide how we want them to be used. And so my plea is that we, we need to look into the future and say, huh, if, if factories are going to become fully automated, what do we want to do about that? If we're going to have more and more uh, complicated technology put into our own bodies, how do we want to regulate that? Do we want to allow everyone to have access to everything or do we want to put some guidelines around it? So I would, I would urge us to embrace the future because we kind of have no choice. It's coming our way. But as we embrace it, we should be thinking about how we want it to operate and try and, and build those guidelines in before it's too late. Deborah Sparr is the author of Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. She's a professor at Harvard Business School and the former president of Barnard College. Deborah, thanks for being here. My pleasure, thank you so much.
talked earlier about how her own family and work life have been shaped by technologies from the refrigerator to the car. If you want to share your story of how tech has enabled or changed your family, maybe in unexpected ways, you can email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. You can also head to the About tab of our website to contact us. That's innovationhub.org. And on our way out here, an update to a story that we covered back in April, the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower's voyage from Plymouth, England to Plymouth, Massachusetts, a route that will be retraced by an autonomous ship. I don't think people today, myself included, really understand how hard it was to do what they did. And it's it's almost unexplainable, right, to think about how many people died from starvation, how many people died from common diseases. You know, the mortality rates just 100 years ago, forget 400 years ago on a continent with no infrastructure at all, um, were staggering. Brett Faniff came up with the idea of the Autonomous Ship Project, which recalls, in a very modern sort of way, the 102 passengers and a few dozen crew members who set sail in September of 1620. Mostly Protestants who'd been at odds with the English king, had lived in exile, and feared further crackdowns. Faniff said the mindset of those on board was hard to wrap his head around. You would be so driven or so compelled to want to live a better life that you would get on a rickety boat that leaked and in the winter sail across the North Atlantic against the prevailing current to get to the wrong place and it's freezing cold, right, with very little to eat and try to scratch out a life there and stick with it. Well, the autonomous ship did indeed launch on September 16th in Plymouth, England, christened by the U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom. But due to the pandemic, the commemorative voyage is now scheduled for April of 2021, 400 and a half years after the first voyage. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Caitlin Falds. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.